Scripture reading today is 2 Kings chapter 2. 2 Kings chapter 2. If you are visiting with us today or if you're new to Trinity, welcome. And we are, as I like to do, returning to the Old Testament after a time away. And we are picking up where we left off in 2 Kings chapter 2. It's been a while since we've been there, so we'll give you a little bit of review. Um, And I'm encouraging you as well, if you're able, after our time of uh, fellowship, after the service, we have an adult Sunday school class, which will be a sermon discussion class, and uh, I will probably not say everything I could say uh, out of 2 Kings 2, and you'll have an opportunity to ask questions or to follow up with some uh, places. Uh, And there are parts of the story that I'm sure will make you want to ask questions. Second Kings chapter 2, we'll read the entire chapter. Now when the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven by a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal. And Elijah said to Elisha, please stay here, for the Lord has sent me as far as Bethel. But Elisha said, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. And the sons of the prophets who were in Bethel came out to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that today the Lord will take away your master from over you? And he said, Yes, I know it. Keep quiet. Elijah said to him, Elisha, please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to Jericho. But he said, As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they came to Jericho. The sons of the prophets who were at Jericho drew near to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that today the Lord will take away your master from over you? And he answered, Yes, I know it. Keep quiet. Then Elijah said to him, Please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to the Jordan. But he said, As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So the two of them went on. Fifty men of the sons of the prophets also went and stood at some distance from them as they both were standing by the Jordan. Then Elijah took his cloak and rolled it up and struck the water, and the water was parted to the one side and to the other till the two of them could go over on dry ground. When they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, Ask what I shall do for you before I am taken from you. And Elisha said, Please, let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. And he said, You have asked a hard thing. Yet, if you see me as I am being taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if you do not see me, it shall not be so. And as they still went on and talked, behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And Elisha saw it, and he cried, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And he saw him no more. And he took a hold of his own clothes and tore them in two pieces. And he took up the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. Then he took the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and struck the water, saying, Where is Yahweh, the God of Elijah? And when he had struck the water, the water was parted to the one side and to the other, and Elisha went over. Now when the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho saw him opposite them, they said, The spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha. And they came to him, and they came to meet him, and bowed to the ground before him. 
And they said to him, Behold, now there are with your servants fifty strong men. Please let them go and seek your master. It may be that the Spirit of the Lord has caught him up and cast him upon some mountain or into some valley. And he said, You shall not send. And when they urged him till he was ashamed, he said, Send. They sent therefore fifty men. And for three days they sought him, but did not find him. And they came back to him while he was staying at Jericho, and he said to them, Did I not say to you, Do not go? Now the men of the city said to Elisha, Behold, the situation of the city is pleasant as my Lord sees, but the water is bad and the land is unfruitful. He said, Bring me a new bowl and put salt in it. So they brought it to him. Then he went to the spring of water and threw salt in it and said, Thus says the Lord, I have healed this water. From now on, neither death nor miscarriage shall come from it. So the water has been healed to this day, according to the word that Elisha spoke. He went up from there to Bethel, and while he was going up on the way, Some small boys came out of the city and jeered at him, saying, Go up, you bald head. Go up, you bald head. And he turned around, and when he saw them, he cursed them in the name of the Lord. And two she-bears came out of the woods and tore forty-two of the boys." From there he went on to Mount Carmel, and from there he returned to Samaria. It's hard to believe it's been over a year and a half since we were last in the book of Kings. If you were here back in June 2021, you might remember we ended with the story of Elijah ascending into heaven. And Since it's been a bit, I thought we ought to refresh our memories and to recognize that the story of the history of Israel as it is told in the book of Kings, originally one book, as it is told, it's a bit hard to follow. From the death of Solomon to the fall of the northern kingdom, we cover the lives of some 40 kings, roughly 20 kings in the south and 20 kings in the north. And more than simply trying to keep all their names straight or to ask whether they're a good king or a bad king, we come to discover that the story itself alternates between these two kingdoms, from the north to the south and back and forth we go. It describes the reign of one king in one half of the country and then shifts our attention to uh, the king or kings who are reigning coterminously in the other part of the country. And as challenging as it might be to keep them all straight or to remember which king follows which king and in what place, the nearly singular concern of the book of Kings is to tell us how well or how not well these kings ruled, how faithful or how not faithful they were to following the Lord and to uh, leading the people in following the Lord in leading the people to following the Lord in covenant obedience and obedience to the relationship that God had established with them. But more importantly, the book and books of Kings are about God and how he's going to respond and how he leads his people and how he responds to what they do or don't do along the way. 
And so we remember that when the death of King Solomon, the end of 1 Kings chapter 11, the kingdom is divided. Ten uh, tribes to the north, two tribes to the south. And we remember that Rehoboam reigned over the southern part in Jerusalem, and Jeroboam reigned in the north from Shechem originally. And for the purposes of our story today, we need to remember Jeroboam in the north reverted to the worship of the gods of the Canaanites and specifically established as alternatives to Jerusalem, two places, one city, Dan, way up north, the other Bethel to the south, where he built golden calves. And if you are starting to remember the stories of golden calves, you know that's a bad thing. But these were places designed to draw the people into the worship of these false gods. Filled with festivals and feasts and non-Levitical priests and sacrifices to these golden calves. Now the book of Kings, 2 Kings, will end with the sad story of the ten tribes of Israel, the two tribes of Judah being sent into exile or being dispersed all as an act of God's judgment for their false worship and for their failing to return to him. First Elijah and then Elisha and then there will be other prophets sent by the Lord to call the nation to repentance. And we have tracked the life and ministry of Elijah who is now in heaven and we pick up where we left off with these first three miraculous acts of Elisha, stories that are hard to believe and hard in some ways to justify or to explain or to give some sense that this is okay. But notice the first, there are three acts, notice the first one has to do with Elisha's identity. Just before Elijah is taken up, Elisha asks for the greatest of all possible blessings, recognizing that the ministry and the continuation of that ministry, the power of Elijah's ministry, was because of the presence on him of the Spirit of God. And that if Elijah was to leave and Elisha was to carry on his ministry, and for his ministry to be effective, it would depend on that same spirit resting on him. So Elisha asked for a double blessing, kind of the blessing of the firstborn son. And it's an affirmation of his call to be a prophet, to represent Yahweh to the people, but it's also the the source of his power, the power he's going to need to carry out Yahweh's mission for him and the message that Yahweh has for his people. And so now with Elijah in heaven and Elisha approaching the Jordan River, he's armed only with Elijah's cloak, but now with a measure of the Spirit, although that's still not known yet. And he asks this question, where now is Yahweh, the God of Elijah? Where is he? Notice that's not unlike the question the disciples ask after Jesus ascends into heaven. Now what? In other words, had Elijah's departure signaled the end of Yahweh's presence with his people? Or would Yahweh be pleased to show his continuing presence in the life and and in the ministry of Elisha? And so Elisha imitates what Elijah had done on the way out. and, And you can notice through this passage there's a lot of movement, a lot of traveling up and down and back up again. 
But Elisha imitates what Elijah has done. He stands in front of the Jordan River and strikes it. And it has parted for him. And he crosses back into the land. Clearly, the Spirit of the Lord is on him. The presence of the Lord is with him. And the sons of the prophets at Jericho, those who are waiting on the other side, testify, verse 15, this, Spirit of Elijah is on Elisha. There's been a transferring, an investiture of this man. And we can look back at the miraculous crossing of the Jordan with Joshua when he first led the people into the promised land, but we can also probably do better even to look ahead to Jesus at the Jordan in his own baptism. A moment where he is both identified by the voice from heaven who said, this is my son in whom I'm pleased, listen to him. And in the descent on Jesus of the Holy Spirit in whose power he will live and move and have his being throughout his ministry. So the first act, this crossing of the Jordan, easy to to miss, but the crossing of the Jordan is an act of confirming his identity, demonstrating the Lord is with him. Well, the second act of Elisha in the chapter is one of covenant blessing. Notice when Elisha crosses the Jordan, he lands as the nation had before him in Jericho. The city, you remember, whose walls had come crashing down. And the city of which the Lord had said through Joshua should never be rebuilt, or if it's rebuilt, will come at the cost of lives. And as Elisha comes to Jericho, there's a problem. And, and if we can remember back, and this is one of the challenges of taking a break in the book of Kings, we, we are invited to come back to think of the earliest days, the beginning of Elijah's career. You remember perhaps how Elijah appears suddenly, without any introduction, in 1 Kings chapter 17. He comes out of nowhere. But if you go back to 1 Kings chapter 16, the immediately preceding verse of 17.1, the last verse of chapter 16, describes the reign of the wicked king Ahab, and we read this, in his days, Ahab's days, Hiel of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundations at the cost of Abiram, his firstborn, set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segu, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. So the last thing we're told before suddenly, chapter 17, 1, now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishba and Gilead said to Ahab, as the Lord lives before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years, except according to my word. So at the beginning of Elijah's ministry and the beginning of Elisha's ministry, we're brought to Jericho and there's a water problem. Now it's a sparkling new city, having just been rebuilt. It seems pleasant, but the water's poison. Probably the best way to think of this is a residual leftover aspect of the curse of God on this city. And so now with a bowl of salt, in the name of the Lord, Elisha heals the water. The first act, crossing the Jordan, is an act of uh, identity. The second one is an act of blessing. 
through this miraculous act and in a land where water is a precious commodity in a place where water was apparently causing leaves to fall off trees and animals and people to miscarry. Water, the symbol of life and vitality and vigor and productivity, is poison. And Elisha reverses that curse and heals that water. And we're told it's healed from then on. So the first is an act of his identity, confirming his identity. The second, an act of blessing. And the third is an act of cursing. And there's no question that this last part of the story is one of the more troubling stories in all the Bible. Elisha retraces his steps. He's gone from uh, the other side of the Jordan, the cross of Jordan, to Jericho, now going up to Bethel, some maybe 30 miles or so away. And this is where we need to remember Bethel is one of those towns with a golden calf. Though it also has sons of prophets who seem to know Elijah and are friends with Elijah who had been warning Elisha or letting him know that Elijah was going to be taken away. Back in verse 3. And as Elisha returns to Bethel, nothing at all is said of his time in the town, how long he spent there, what he did while he was there. But it's clear that the story of Elijah's ascension into heaven is well known. And in the opening verses of verse 24, Elisha, we have this picture of him actually leaving the city. He's followed by, or perhaps even chased out by, escorted at least, by a rather large group of young boys who begin to mock him. Notice he turns around to see them. Now, if Elijah was recognized for his hairy garment, apparently Elisha was the before picture on the bottle of Rogaine. Go on up, you bald head. Go up, you bald head. These children are not only mocking his baldness, but I take this to mean they are telling him to go on up or to disappear like Elijah did. There's so many problems or challenges to appropriating this story. Notice we're not told how old these boys actually were. The words used to describe them are flexible enough to be used in other places to describe servants, so lesser lowly folk or even young unmarried men. And at the same time, I don't think we need to rush to say they must have been older like teens or young adults and uh, therefore are more culpable for their sin and somehow in that way making the outcome of the story more palatable. We don't need to do that. Nevertheless, we face this question, what kind of a God, what kind of a God sends bears to tear apart little boys who are mocking a man because he's bald? Or what kind of a prophet of the Lord, out of a fit of pique, out of a fit of anger, calls on the Lord to judge boys for calling him bald? Is Elisha just a hypersensitive man? Notice he curses them in the name of the Lord. 
And we should understand this not as if he uses a bunch of words that we're not supposed to use uh, to describe those boys, but rather he's calling out to the Lord to judge them, which is what the Lord does. Two bears come out of the woods and tear into the boys, mauling 42 of them, suggesting uh, that the group was even larger than that. And we're still stuck with, what are we to make of this? I don't think this is the text to use when your little boys are squirming in church and not listening to the sermon. Though I bet it has been used that way. And, as, and, and there's a perverse part of me that wishes I could let little boys know I have two bears back behind there. But notice, it is the Lord who sends the bears. And since Elisha has cursed those boys in the name of the Lord, we must see this as an act of the Lord. Again, not only authenticating Elisha as a prophet of the Lord, but more than that, using this moment as both an act and as a sign of the Lord keeping his covenant promises. Let me take you to just a few places in Scripture to help us make some sense of this story. Let's assume these are small children. Let's assume they're young boys. But then notice with me, we have a counterexample on Palm Sunday when the children joining with all of the families marching into Jerusalem welcome because they recognize Jesus to be the son of David, the king to come. And everyone is crying out, Hosanna in the highest glory to God. Praise the Lord, the king has come, the son of David. And the children join in in that praise. And they hardly really recognize what they're saying. Some of the adults, I'm not sure, recognize what they were saying. But then just a little later, when they come into the city, the little children are tearing around the temple, as little children are wont to do after services. And they're running around the, the temple precincts, and they're calling out, Hosanna, the son of David. And you remember the Pharisees are upset about this. And what's going on there is children are imitating their parents. They're saying way more than they probably mean or intend to say. They don't necessarily recognize everything that's all the import of those words. But they're imitating their parents. And I suspect that these children here in 2 Kings chapter 2 are doing the very same thing, imitating their parents and grown-ups who are mocking, have mocked Elijah before him and Elisha now. They don't like Elijah. They don't like Elisha because at the heart of this conflict is the question of worship. Who is your God? And Elisha is the representative of the Lord to people who have rejected the Lord. And in mocking Elisha, the prophet of the Lord, and uh, their, uh, the, the destruction of these children is intended at least to send a message of warning to the adults. Well, that still might not be enough to satisfy us regarding the severity of the Lord's response. Does he really need to send bears? Do they really need to tear apart 42 children? 
Now come back with me to Leviticus chapter 26. It's a summary of the blessings, a rehearsing of the blessings and the curses of God in response to Israel's obedience or disobedience. In their relationship, in this covenant he's established with them. Where he says, the Lord says, if you walk in my statutes, observe my commandments, and do them, I will give you peace in the land. And you shall lie down. And none shall make you afraid. I will remove harmful beasts from the land. And he goes on to say, but on the other hand, if you do not listen to me, if you will not do these commandments, if you spurn my statute, if your soul abhors my rules so that you will not do all my commandments, but break my covenant, then I will let loose the wild beasts against you, which shall bereave you of your children. And then notice one more thing, how this story might be remembered as it is told and retold during the exile and upon the return to the land. The last words of 2 Chronicles 36, we read this kind of summary of the history of Israel and the explanation for the exile. We read this, Yahweh, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words, scoffing at the prophets, until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people, and then hear this, until there was no remedy. It's as if the Lord had had it over generations sending prophet after prophet after prophet because of his great compassion and love for his people. And in each case, the people rejected, mocked, ridiculed, scoffed in this way, despising the word of the Lord. And it got to be so bad. It's as if the Lord finally said, that's it, I've had it, there's no other solution. And he disperses and sends them into exile. Now ask the question, does the story of two bears tearing up 42 children disturb us? It should. It should. Not only is this another act to confirm the identity of Elisha as a messenger of the Lord, And not only are these apparently young children probably imitating their parents and mocking this man and saying, get on out of here. Go the same way Elijah went. All this brings about through the mouth of the prophet confirmed by the actions of the Lord God's commitment to keeping his promises to judge those who reject him, who do not listen to his word. So this weird story, troubling story, a story that is a stumbling block for many people who would say, what kind of a God does this? Or what kind of a prophet would call on the judgment of God? What kind of a God would send bears to tear up little boys? 
I'll tell you what kind of a God would do that. A God who's concerned for his own honor, his own reputation, who comes with compassion to speak and wants to be heard. And the kind of God who will then also turn his covenant curses on his own son, the word made flesh, who came into this world to speak God's word, who was mocked and ridiculed and scorned, and who went to the cross and bore the covenant curses of God in his own body, so that we might receive all the blessings of God, pictured in this tiny small way in healthy water, but pictured ultimately for us in Jesus Christ, that we might receive and enjoy every blessing of God that we don't deserve. And so we can now serve in God's name. We can take the same good news of this transferring, of the still hard reality of the curses of God due for sin, and of the gracious, glorious blessings of God earned for us by Christ. We can take the same good news that we ourselves have received and embraced that others might by the same Holy Spirit possess Christ. And with him all the blessings and all the benefits he's earned in his death, in his resurrection. That they too might escape the curses he took on himself that are otherwise due to all who reject him. Curses that will be eternally worse than being torn apart by bears. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for these great Old Testament stories. Thank you for all the reality of them, for the challenges they are to our understanding, but the way they also deepen and enrich the ways we come to see Jesus. Thank you, Father, for your prophets who spoke. Thank you for Jesus, our greatest prophet. Lord, grant us to welcome him and his word, to receive it, to believe it and embrace it. And Lord, thank you, thank you for the blessings of your covenant promises poured out on us, unworthy recipients, because Jesus took on the curses due to us. Receive our thanks and Refresh us in this good news. And we ask all this in Jesus' name and all God's people say together.